Hello and welcome back to the lab after a small hiatus. Now in a previous early podcast we discussed how the respiratory tract is often termed the respiratory tree, owing to the fact that the large diameter trachea or windpipe branches into smaller diameter bronchi and then into even smaller bronchioles, until we reach the millions of alveolar sacs at the end. These sacs have a massive surface area and are the site of gaseous exchange, which in essence means oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. And this is breathing, or ventilation to be specific. Now you breathe around 20,000 times per day, or over 500 million times in a lifetime. What we didn't really explore prior is that, interestingly, your lungs are passive in the process of breathing. Let me explain what I mean. In the alveolar sacs, we encounter an elastic-like substance called elastin that comprises its structure and allows it to stretch open on inspiration and to recoil to its resting size on expiration. But the lungs themselves do not initiate these movements. Instead, it is the role of a group of muscles we call the muscles of respiration, which technically should be called the muscles of ventilation, but not worth splitting hairs over on this one. Let's take a look how this occurs then. Now when you breathe in, your chest, known as the thoracic cavity, expands upwards and outwards, and in doing so the volume of the thorax increases dramatically. This movement is controlled by the primary muscles of respiration, which are principally the sheet-like diaphragm that separates the thorax from the abdomen, and the intercostal muscles, which are the three sets of muscles between each rib. Costal means rib, and inter means between, so pretty good name as it goes. The action of these muscles dramatically increases the volume of the thorax as the chest wall moves up and out, and this in turn dramatically reduces the pressure in the thoracic cavity, as volume is inversely proportional to pressure, and for anyone who's into their physics, this is known as Boyle's Law. Now the subsequent pressure gradient compared to the outside world causes air to be sucked into the respiratory tubes, and in doing so, inflating the alveolar sacs and therefore the lungs themselves. Now that is the basics of ventilation, and so some of you may wish to switch off now making this a two or three minute podcast. But for those who are wanting to know the ways, the what's and how's, let's do a bit of a deeper dive. Your diaphragm is a sheet-like muscle that is actually split into two domes called the hemidiaphragms. You have a left and a right, and with the right sitting slightly higher up due to the liver being inferior to it. When you breathe in, these domed hemidiaphragms flatten downwards, compressing the abdominal contents and increasing the space in the thoracic cavity. When you then breathe out, they rise again to form their domed resting position. They are innervated by a left and a right phrenic nerve, and I will talk much more on these nerves in a separate soundbite. On to the intercostal muscles then. The intercostal muscles have a more interesting action. There are three sets of intercostal muscles between each rib. From superficial to deep, we see that the external, the internal, and the innermost intercostal muscles make up this group. The last one sounds like they run out of names, but we just have to accept some unusual naming in anatomy sometimes. So the first action that you see in most textbooks is that the ribs and sternum move up and out to expand the chest. Now if you have a photo or a model of a skeleton at hand, take a look at the orientation of the ribs. You will observe the anterior rib ends are much lower than the posterior ends. And this downward angulation of the ribs is what facilitates the chest moving up and outward when you breathe in and the intercostal muscles contract. But the intercostal muscles don't stop there. They have another often ignored function that is just as important, and that is to prevent the chest wall from collapsing under pressure when you breathe. Now this is achieved as the muscle fibres of each layer have a different orientation to each other. 
So the three sets of intercostal muscles form a mesh or cross-hatched pattern with the orientation of their fibres. And this mesh that is created is important to form and maintain an airtight and pressure-resistant seal in the chest, stopping the chest wall from being sucked in when you breathe in and out and allowing the lungs to inflate instead. We only really see this action when it fails, and this is most dramatic if you see a child in respiratory distress, as one of the objective findings to look out for is intercostal recession, where large thoracic pressures are pulling in the more cartilaginous child's chest wall, and the muscle's pressure resistance has failed. Finally, there is one group of muscles of respiration to discuss here, and that is the accessory muscles or secondary muscles of respiration. A simple rule will allow you to identify these ones. Any muscle that attaches to the thorax can be recruited when in respiratory distress to increase mechanical ventilation. And there are loads of these. I won't list them all here, but your sternocleidomastoid muscles, the strap muscles in the neck, the pectoralis major, are to name a couple. If you fix your shoulder girdle by placing your hands on your knees or hands on your head after a run, you can recruit these muscles and increase forceful mechanical ventilation and thereby increase gaseous exchange. So that is it, the primary and secondary muscles of respiration, what they are, where they are and how they are. Speak to you again very soon on another episode of Dissectable Meat.